I like those key changes at the end of those songs. <clears throat> Keeps us on our toes. Uh, in his book, uh, Hard to Believe, Pastor John MacArthur, he tells three stories. He writes this. He says, Some of the most dramatic examples I've ever seen of the deceived disguised as Christians were people who had been my closest friends. He says, the first was a, a high school classmate and teammate named Ralph. He says he and I worked summers at his dad's car dealership, repossessing cars from people who hadn't made their payments, a teenager's dream job. We spent a lot of time together besides work and school, passing out tracts and witnessing in Pershing Square in downtown Los Angeles. He was the head of his church youth group. I was the head of mine. He said all the right things and seemed for all the world to be on fire for Christ. But when he went off to college, he completely abandoned the faith. I was stunned. Then he writes, in, in college, I had a close friend named Don who was, I thought, a true spiritual friend in every sense. We were co-captains of the football team. He was the class president. I was the vice president. We both taught Bible studies. Our dads were pastors, and we were both thinking about being pastors too. We talked a lot together about serving the Lord. But then he went to Europe, got a Ph.D. in psychology, became a teacher and rock concert promoter, and eventually he was indicted, convicted, and sentenced for having students naked up in front of his classroom. He totally abandoned the faith, he says. Then he writes, Then I went to seminary. One of my best friends, whose father was the dean at the seminary, put a Buddhist altar in his house after he graduated. Here was someone who had prepared himself for a lifetime of preaching and teaching the truth of Scripture, yet whose whole life and ministry up to that time were revealed to be a deceptive lie. And then he goes on to explain this. He says, These experiences were devastating, yet they showed me in an unforgettable way that somebody very involved in the church saying all the right things isn't always a Christian. Nothing else could have impressed the lesson on my heart more clearly. It kept sending me back to 1 John 2.19 for comfort and encouragement. And 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not of us. And then he concludes with this statement. Our main mission field in America today is within the church. Now there is certainly some hyperbole in that statement. But if John chapter 6 is any indication, there's also great truth in it as well. Every pastor, every elder can tell you stories of people who were once active church members active members in the church right alongside them oftentimes. Sometimes they were even in leadership positions. And at some point, for a variety of reasons, they just simply stopped attending. And I don't mean switched churches. I don't mean stopped attending their church. I mean stopped going to church. And I don't believe that going to church makes you a Christian, makes anybody a Christian, any more than going to somebody's birthday party makes you a, a real part of their family. The Bible knows, however, nothing about churchless Christians. And the, and the sad fact that, that many pastor, many elder, any, many Christians can tell you about is that those who have walked away from their local assembly of the saints, their local church, 
often they've also, also walked away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is actually a common warning in the New Testament as well. Peter closes his second epistle, his second letter, with this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Paul encourages the Colossian Christians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And again, in in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And we could go on with these warnings and these admonitions. But the scriptures make it clear over and over and over again that there are many, for example, like Demas. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14 Paul, kind of in conclusion to his letter, says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Demas, right there ministering alongside, no doubt being discipled by the Apostle Paul, serving with Luke, the author of the Gospel according to Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. But by the time we get to the end of 2 Timothy, several years later, another letter that Paul writes, he concludes his letter to Timothy by saying this, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In love with this present world has deserted me. Every pastor I know could write that statement with just changing the names, changing the person's name and the city name. My suspicion is that most Christians could say that as well. It's not unique to pastors. The hope that we have is that we have a Savior, however, who is well acquainted with grief. We have a Savior who is well acquainted with these things. Jesus, the man of sorrows, experienced the desertion of his followers. Those who could, who could even be considered his disciples, and yet they turned away and followed him no more. So we're going to pick up the... Scriptures here in John chapter 6, verses 60 to 65. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter just so that we can get a sense of the context. So John chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's just pray again. Lord, as John said, he must decrease, or he must increase and I must decrease. Lord, it is my prayer that, that you would increase in the hearts and minds of us today, that I would decrease. Help us to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. During the first part of Jesus' ministry, um, people flocked to him. They came from all over to hear him preach, to hear and see his miracles, the signs that he was doing. Now, John, here in John's gospel, John doesn't tell us much about his, uh, the first year or two of Jesus' ministry. But we can certainly see an obvious indicator here in this chapter of the fact that he um, had people flocking to him because he had just fed 5,000 men. 5,000 families about, women and children too. And then after he left them, uh, they were still coming from across the Sea of Galilee looking for him. And then verse 24 says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They tried to find him. They were looking for him. They were following him across the Sea of Galilee. Mark is a little bit more blunt, the gospel according to Mark. Upon seeing his authority, for example, over an unclean spirit, the people respond in Mark chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, and they were all amazed. They questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That's the area that he is here in John chapter 6. He is well known. He's famous throughout the whole region. People are flocking to him. They want to see him and hear him. Those who came across Jesus were attracted by his authoritative teaching, Mark tells us. They were attracted by his miracles. And and of these followers, some of them followed him wholeheartedly. But most... Most were just interested or even intrigued by him and and what um, we will see soon will come to be, at least at best, they had a half-hearted discipleship, which really turns out to be no discipleship at all. And so here in verse 60, we see another, another change in the people who are interacting with Jesus. So back in verse 22, in John 6, 22, And then again in verse 24, John calls the group of people that are following him around, he calls them the crowd. This is the same crowd that he had fed the day before. This is the same crowd who who pursued him across the sea. And so from that point, really verses 22 and 24, down through verse 40, John uses pronouns. He says they or them, but he's talking about this crowd, this crowd of people who's following him. 
Then in verse 41, and again in verse 52, the focus on the crowd is, is narrowed a little bit to a group that John calls the Jews, which we said specifically, we said this in the last couple of weeks, these are, the, these are specifically the Jewish religious leadership. And eventually this term, the Jews, later on in the book of John, will, will represent those who openly reject Jesus and even demand his execution. But now here in verse 60, where we pick it up today, Jesus is interacting with a, with a group that John calls his disciples. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, his disciples we need to be clear that this is a distinct group from the 12. John specifically calls the 12 disciples the 12 later on in this section. Uh, these are the 12 men that we normally think of when we think of his disciples. This is a different group, this group of his disciples in verse 60. Um, look at it. You can see the distinction here in verse 66. When it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now we're going to get into the details of those verses in uh, next week, Lord willing. But what we need to understand today is that this is two different groups of people. So I think you understand that. So what Jesus is doing in verse 60 is, is he's turning his conversation from the, really from the religious leadership the Jews, to this specific group of people who had been following him. This group of people were disciples. They were followers of, of Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi Jesus, the good teacher, who sometimes performed interesting miracles, but has now started to, to teach really hard sayings, to say really difficult to understand things. See, here in the second half of chapter 6, Jesus has become, he's become much more specific in his claims. And so what we see happening now is the, the true disciples being sifted from the false disciples. And this is really just the beginning of the sifting. In fact, there are hints, even in this passage, of Judas being sifted out from the twelve, from the, the disciples, both in this section when he mentions it in verse 65, and then later on when he says it specifically near the end of the chapter. You need to remember that this kind of sifting continues in the church even to today. In fact, that's the point of, for example, Matthew chapter 25. The sifting of genuine disciples from false disciples will continue all the way up until the day of the Lord. When on that day, the Lord will say to many who claim to be his disciples, I do not know you. I never knew you. But it gets even worse than that. Not only does he say to them, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know you. But he will even say, verse 30 of Matthew 25, for example, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this, this condemnation, because of a lack of genuine faith, a lack of genuine trust in Christ, it really culminates in Matthew 25, verse 41, where he will say to those whom he does not know, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He's speaking about hell. That's very sobering. You do not, I do not know you. 
Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you of the context of this chapter, of John chapter 6. Um, all the way back in verse 4, so chapter 6, verse 4, we see that the, the Passover celebration, it says, is at hand. And in verse 59, just the verse before our section today, John tells us that, that this part of the dialogue actually takes place in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue. So the Jews would have had the story of the Exodus on their mind, which is what the Passover is all about. Particularly, they would have remembered Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. Turn back there for just a minute. I want you to see these words. Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. And Moses called all the leaders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he had promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Here in Capernaum, in John chapter 6, they still observed this Passover celebration, this Passover remembrance. It was one of the most important Jewish festivals, even to today, it still is. And so these people, they would have been preparing for the feast. They would have been preparing a lamb to be consumed, a lamb that would die and be eaten by them. Um, they would have been reading these passages in the synagogues, passages like that in the surrounding verses and chapters. They would have read from Exodus chapter 16, where God provides his people with manna from heaven when they were in the wilderness, bread from heaven. In fact, they would have had these images of bread, of flesh and blood and salvation or, or deliverance. They would have had these images on their minds, even as Jesus was teaching them these things here. This makes their response to what he has said all the more sad. Because they move from, from grumbling and complaining about him in, in verse 41 to disputing among themselves, arguing uh, among themselves in verse 52. And now as John seems to narrow in on those who are to be considered his disciples, it's pretty clear that they're not understanding his message. They're not understanding what in the world he is talking about. This brings us to the conclusion of his teaching. We'll look at the results of his teaching next week, beginning in verse 66. But his conclusion here from 60 to 65 um, is how, this really is how he finishes this long chapter. And so we can see 
Really what he does is he drops the metaphors. He stops talking about bread and and flesh and blood, and, and he drops these metaphors and he begins to speak clearly once again. And so we can see three characteristics of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, really three characteristics that we could say of, of gospel preaching, of preaching of the good news. Let me give you all three and then we will go back over them. The first is that it is a hard saying. He says, or they say, it is a hard saying, it is a hard teaching. The second, it is an offensive scandal. This teaching is, is an offense. It is an offensive scandal and yet this teaching is, is spirit and life. It is spirit in life. James Montgomery Boyce uh, was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said this of Jesus' teaching. He said, The Lord Jesus had been popular, but as he began to teach, his doctrine became the measure of his followers' discipleship, and most dropped away. He was very popular, but the more he taught, the less people followed him. And as I said, this is not unique to John chapter 6. In fact, this often happens when supposed discipleship is is tested by the teaching and preaching of God's word. It's happened here. It's happened in every church where where, where there is the preaching and teaching of God's word. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Paul even predicted that it would happen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, who will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I believe we've got to be pretty close to peak, wander off into myths territory in our day and age. But this really is the first characteristic here. It's a hard saying. These are hard things. It's a hard teaching. Look at verse 60 again. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So John directs our attention to the reaction of this group of his disciples to his teaching, really from verse 54. Let's summarize summarize what he has taught. Verse 54 says this, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And their response is, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? This reaction is actually stronger than it seems. Um, See, the adjective adjective hard, this is a hard saying, it doesn't necessarily mean difficult. It is difficult. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are saying this is hard to understand. While that's true, his teachings are hard to understand, but hard here actually means something more along the lines of harsh or, or even offensive which is the word that Jesus picks up on at the end of verse 61. See, they weren't saying, they weren't saying, I I don't understand. What's he talking about? Does anybody understand what this guy is talking about? That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I don't accept these things. Who can accept these things? This is, this is harsh. This is, this is offensive. Who can listen to this stuff? I've quoted D.A. Carson before. He's a New Testament scholar. And again, again he, he says this. These disciples will not long remain disciples because they find Jesus' word intolerable. It's intolerable, the things that Jesus has been saying to them. That's what's happening here. 
It's intolerable. Here's the problem. At various times throughout church history, it's been, it's been popular to be known as Christian. It's been popular. In our own nation's history, it has been popular to be a Christian or to be known as a Christian really only until the last few years, maybe the last decade or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, but really up until just recently in our lifetimes, it has been popular to be a Christian, to be known as being a Christian. Um, It's only been these last few years that Christianity has become unpopular. Historically speaking, there have been two things that have served to drive this kind of false discipleship away from the church. And the first is persecution. This one's fairly obvious. After all, who would be willing to die uh, for something you don't really believe in, right? Um, Throughout church history, persecution has really always purified the church, has made her spiritually stronger. It's actually had the effect of causing the gospel to spread to other parts of the world. And so we could think of it like this, when Christianity is finally outlawed in North America, we will finally go and spread the gospel to South America, or we will go to Africa, we will go to places where, uh, where we can go. Persecution always has that effect. That's how Christians came to North America to begin with. That's how they came to Europe before that, or to Asia. But the second thing that serves to to drive false disciples away from the church is usually seen at more localized, more individual church level, and that is difficult or dense teaching. In our modern day, especially as Americans, we want a quick fix. I read this week that according to a recent Harris poll, Taco Bell was named the best Mexican restaurant in the United States. And if that doesn't summarize what's wrong in our country, I don't know what does. Now, I don't care what your opinion is of Taco Bell. You may like it. I, you've got something wrong with you if you do. But, but there's no possible way that Taco Bell is the best Mexican restaurant in the United States. There's no possible way. And most of our churches are to the Bible what Taco Bell is to an authentic Mexican dinner. We want a quick fix for whatever problem we might have. We want our preachers to be only positive and encouraging and to agree with us and tell us who to vote for. We're not willing to dig into the hard parts of Scripture, the difficult sayings. We're not willing to be confronted by our own sins, especially those sins that we think are they're really no big deal, like pride or selfishness or covetousness or greed or sloth, laziness. In fact, far too many Christians and, and, and churches and pastors refuse to call anything sin. But the Bible consistently, and Jesus specifically here, goes after the heart of the matter. Being a Christian is hard. Being a Christian is hard. Calling out my sin in front of the church is hard. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. He says, when, and Jesus said, uh, told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One of the best Christian songwriters, maybe the best in the modern era, Rich Mullins, 
He put it this way. And it's hard when your soul has been stripped bare. Hard to lift your eyes toward heaven. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be a man of prayer. Lord, it's hard. Oh, it's hard. You know, it's hard to be like Jesus. Lord, it's hard to turn the other cheek. Hard to bless when others curse you. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be a man of peace. Lord, it's hard. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to be like Jesus. Then Luke chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who come against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. Cannot. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is not the type of language that we expect. We want to be told that we're special. We want to be told that the Bible is God's love letter to us, or to me specifically. This is, this is to me. We want to be told that God loves us unconditionally. But Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, to deny our own comforts and desires, to eat his flesh, drink his blood. And when they hear these things, churchgoers often reply in disgust, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? I thank God that this church is not like that. But here's the thing, they're right, it's hard. This is a hard saying. It is difficult to accept. It is difficult to believe these things, which is what makes God-given faith all the more necessary. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the work of God, the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This is why Jesus says in verse 65 here, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless, uh, unless it is granted to him by the Father. But Jesus, before Jesus kind of gets at that reasoning, he responds to their disgust. They're disgusted. This, this is a harsh, a hard, difficult saying. Who, who can listen to this stuff? He responds in verses 61 and 62 by saying this. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now this is clearly a a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. They do take offense. They take offense at what he's been saying. But do you know what Jesus asked them literally? He isn't saying, Did I offend you? He's saying, Are you scandalized by this? See, it's not their their feelings that are hurt. That's not what he's worried about. They are repulsed by his teaching. This is the second characteristic of the message of Jesus' gospel here, of the gospel preaching. It is an offensive scandal. What was it that so offended them? Well, judging by their 
really judging by this entire chapter, their entire conversation throughout this chapter, there are four aspects of his teaching that they did not like. Number one, they wanted their physical needs met. Look back at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They wanted their physical needs met. They wanted bread. Is this any different today? There are people who go to church to have their physical needs met. Now, there are two ends to this spectrum. We're called to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters who are genuinely in need. That is uh, undeniable in the scriptures. But the Bible also says that whoever will not work should not eat. So those are the standards. But more often in churches, people go, people attend, they become members in a specific church in order to make business connections. This is common. It's actually less common today than it was uh, from the 50s to the 80s, probably. People would know which church was the happening church in town, and if you wanted to sell your product, you went to that church and became a member and got to know those people, and then they would be your customer base. Um, I don't see this happening here, and I want to be clear. I don't care if we do business with one another. I'm talking about going in order to do business with one another, viewing each other as business targets. Number two, and that's what they wanted their, their physical needs met. Number two, they wanted their political needs met. This is back in verse 15. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus is not a pawn for one political viewpoint or another. Have you ever thought about this? In many ways, the Jews who wanted to make Jesus king, they would have been right. They would have been justified. Rome was a corrupt, uh, oppressive, evil, and in some ways even a, a racist system. But Jesus did not seek social justice for them. Instead, he laid down his life in a, in a Rome, on a Roman cross that whoever would come to him in repentance would be freed from their slavery to sin. He could have very easily become king right here in verse, chapter 6, verse 15. Raised a militant army and gone in and overthrown the Roman occupiers. It would have been easy for him, but that wasn't the point. Third, they wanted their, I think the best way to put this is they wanted their curiosity needs met. They were interested, they were curious about the signs and wonders. Verses 30 and 31 says this. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. They wanted their curiosity needs met. And Jesus said, I'm so much bigger than that. Fourth, they wanted their religious needs met. And Jesus didn't fit into their box. That's why they appealed to Moses. And Jesus continually pointed out, for example, in verse 58, he says to them, 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. They were clinging to Moses as their great deliverer, but the people died, even though they ate bread from heaven. That generation died out centuries earlier. Jesus is so much bigger than that. And it really ties in with kind of a a fifth aspect of Jesus' teaching that they didn't like, which is this. They wanted their their traditional Jewish needs met. What I mean by that is their, their traditions and their customs. But Jesus was telling them that these things, the, the flesh, the, the, blood of the, the flesh and blood of the Passover lamb, the, the manna from heaven, they're all merely symbols pointing to the reality of himself. And all of this offended them. All of this was a scandal to them. It was a scandal in their eyes, the things that he was saying. And this is where we have to confront the scandal of the cross because that's what we're talking about. When Jesus gave up his flesh and blood. It was on the cross. We talked about this last week, but the cross of Jesus Christ, the implications of his, of his teaching here about flesh and blood, this is what makes Christianity so offensive to the human mind and the human heart. See, to the natural man, um, most Bible stories, whether we're talking about Adam and Eve or Noah's Ark or Israel crossing the Red Sea, or Daniel in the lion's den, or David and Goliath. Most Bible stories, while they may seem far-fetched to the natural man, most are not scandalously offensive, right? Same goes for many Bible teachings, not just the stories, but also the teachings. The Ten Commandments. Some of them are laws of most countries. Nobody is scandalized by the saying, you shall not kill. We pretty much as humans agree with these uh, commandments. The story of Jesus' birth. Linus recites it every year on the Peanuts Christmas special on broadcast television. He reads that story every single Christmas. We're not offended by it, mostly. The resurrection, most people like the idea. They like the idea of coming back from the dead. And even though they get so many of the basics wrong, Easter is still a big deal in our society, right? We don't have a problem with the resurrection, at least the idea of it. We don't get the the details, but we we don't have a problem with it. But the idea of a substitution for a substitutionary atonement, a payment for sins with death, that's a scandal to any right-thinking modern human being. Do you know why? Because the cross means that we need saving. The cross tells us that that the phrase, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that might just be true. It tells us that there just might be some validity to the idea that, as Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Maybe there's some truth to that. The cross tells us that Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just might include us. In fact, it must include us. 
Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The cross is a scandal because it means that we need saving. And the cross also proclaims that man is so lost, so badly needs saving, that there's, there's nothing he can do to save himself. That's what the cross says. The cross condemns any kind of self-righteousness or any kind of works-based salvation. The cross tells us that, that we need a Savior, someone to step in our place and take the punishment for us. The cross tells us that it is only the perfect Son of God who can deliver us. People are fine with the idea of Jesus as a good teacher, but the cross tells us that we are failures when it comes to following his teaching and his example. L let me let the scriptures explain this themselves. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, we see this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is... This naturally leads to really the third reason that the cross is so scandalously offensive, and that's this. The cross demands an exclusive salvation in Christ alone. In our day, this may be the most scandalous thing that you can say, that Christianity is right and all other religions are wrong. But if we are honest about it, every religion claims to be the truth. Christianity is no different in that claim. We all claim to have the truth, but Christianity is the truth. Jesus tells us that. Some have called um, this kind of substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross divine child abuse. They would say, this is disgusting. Why would a loving father send his son to the cross but the Bible calls it love. It's not child abuse. It's love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, or to put it in Jesus' own words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said that. To take offense at the cross is to take offense at Jesus' own gospel. To take offense at the cross is to reject his ascension into glory. He says that. If, you, if these things are hard to believe, wait until you see me ascend back into heaven. 
To reject the cross is to reject his victory over sin and death. To take offense is to, is to reject his victory. To, to reject the cross is to reject Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father with his enemies as his footstool. This is the, this is the point of this passage. Jesus drops all kind of pretense of of metaphor or symbolism, and he says in verse 63 here, he says, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is spirit and life. Christianity, salvation, it doesn't depend on your strength. In fact, your feeble flesh is no help whatsoever. This is why these so-called disciples would soon stop following him. They were responding to him in the, in the flesh, with their own minds. Instead, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which makes verse 65 all the more powerful, all the more gracious. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none of us, none of us may boast. None of us may boast. We don't do this. God does this. The offensive scandal of the cross is a hard saying. It's a hard teaching. It's even harsh. And apart from the grace of God, who can understand these things? The answer is no one. And so it is the Spirit of God who gives life, Jesus says. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not as a result of any of our works so that nobody in here or or anywhere can boast. This is God's doing. Let's pray. Lord, these people were right. It is a hard saying. It is hard to understand. It is harsh that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But Lord, that penalty was due to me. I should have paid that. I should have gone and paid the penalty for my own sins. And yet Christ in his love went to the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin that I that we might become the righteousness of God purified set free Lord help us to believe help us to respond as the disciples to whom should we go you have the words of eternal life help us to believe that these are the words of eternal life Save us, Lord. Remind us of these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.